0: Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Gallery of Modern Art. My name is Russell Store. I'm the Curatorial Manager of Asian and Pacific Art here at the Queensland Art Gallery. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land that we meet upon tonight. I'd also like to acknowledge here tonight Mr Shinya Machida, the Deputy Consul-General Japan, and Andrew O'Neill, Director of Griffith Asia Institute from Griffith University. Um, Chancellor Ms Lenine Ford and Vice-Chancellor Professor Ian O'Connor in their apologies tonight. And I'd also like to thank the um, students from the Conservatorium for their wonderful music Um, that greeted us here this evening. So thank you. (laughs) So I'd also um, like to thank Andrew and the uh, Griffith Asia Institute at Griffith University for their collaboration with the gallery on the Perspectives Asia program which since 2005 has presented a bold and wide-ranging program of talks which investigate contemporary culture, society and politics in our region. This will be the fourth of our Perspectives Asia lectures for 2012 which have ranged from Japanese fashion to close analyses of Australia's relationships with the great powers of India and China and the middle powers of Indonesia and South Korea. We're very fortunate to have Dr Andrew Self as our speaker for this evening. Dr. Self is an adjunct research fellow at the Griffith Asia Institute. He has a PhD from Griffith and degrees in history and international relations from ANU. He studied international security issues and Asian affairs for nearly 40 years as a diplomat, strategic intelligence anal- analyst and a research scholar. He's published four books and more than 70 peer-reviewed monographs, chapters and articles, most of them about Burma and related subjects including the 2002 book Burma's Armed Forces Power Without Glory. Dr South was a member of the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs for 14 years, serving as a diplomat in Burma, which sparked his interest in the country, the Republic of Korea and New Zealand. In 1986 he transferred to the Department of Defence, where he worked primarily as a strategic analyst with the um, Defence Intelligence Organisation. In 2004 he was appointed Assistant Director General Transnational Issues in the Office of National Assessments, Australia's peak intelligence assessment agency. He retired from the public service in 2006 and was awarded an Australian Research Council Fellowship the following year. The title of Dr Self's presentation this evening is Burma Watching a retrospective which will draw on four decades of close observation of this enigmatic country as well as a wide range of academic and media sources. The recent shifts in Burma, or to give it its official name, Myanmar, have been extraordinary to watch, but difficult to interpret. As political reforms take place, activists are released, including the democracy movement's figurehead Aung San Suu Kyi, and sanctions are lifted, the country appears to be moving into a new, more open phase. Where these fascinating developments lead will be highly important to our region, and it's extremely timely and fortunate to have the opportunity to hear Dr Sells' insights tonight. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Andrew
1: Self. Thanks very much, Russell, and uh, thank you all for coming tonight. Over the past few years, Burma has rarely been out of the news. There have been countless stories in the papers and on television about President Thein Sein's reform program, which seems to hold out the promise of an end to military rule. The new political a public political role of opposition leader Aung San Suu Kyi, the ethnic and religious tensions that continue to trouble Burma and the international community's responses to all these developments. These are all serious issues worthy of our attention. Tonight however I want to talk about a broader subject and that is public perceptions of Burma, how it's been seen by the outside world and what factors have helped shape those images over the past few hundred years. I've been watching Burma, or Myanmar as it's now officially known, for nearly 40 years, as Russell said, ever since I was posted to the Australian Embassy in Rangoon in 1974. Looking back over that period, and well beyond, I've been struck by a number of recurring themes, and I want to look at three of them tonight. Firstly, From time to time, Burma has captured the public's attention, usually coinciding with major historical events. But generally speaking, it's always been at the outer edge of the popular consciousness, not just in Australia but elsewhere as well. Secondly, descriptions of Burma, particularly in the press and now on the internet, have tended to be characterised by extremes. Over and again, stark contrasts have been drawn between soft romantic pictures of Burma, and darker, much less attractive images. Both may have included elements of the truth, but as with all extremes, they are neither complete nor entirely accurate. As a result, and this is my third theme, for many years Burma has been little known and poorly understood. There have been exceptions, of course, but this knowledge gap has meant that popular perceptions of Burma have often been based based on myths, misconceptions and misunderstandings. All of these factors can be found in the public debate which has been conducted about Burma since the pro-democracy uprising of 1988. Over the past 20 years or so, the country has attracted unprecedented public attention. Yet it still tends to be portrayed in stark, and dare I say it, rather simplistic terms. Some very bold claims have been made, not always with supporting evidence, and in these circumstances, finding and understanding what some have called the real Burma has been quite difficult. Tonight, I'd like to sketch out some of these broad trends, using a range of sources to help illustrate the way in which perceptions of Burma have changed and remained the same over the years, and I'll close with a few brief observations about the state of Burma studies today. Perhaps the easiest way of showing how Burma has attracted attention, or not, over time, is with a few graphs. This one is taken from the National Library of Australia's Trove database and it shows the number of times that Burma's been mentioned in Australian newspapers between 1803 and 1954. As you can see, the level is generally very low. Uh, but there are a few significant bumps uh, the first anglo burmese war of 1824 to 26 uh, shows a bump the second anglo burmese war of 1852 uh, shows a bit of a bump in 1885 to 6 the third anglo burmese war and the fall of mandalay uh, shows another bump in the 1930s there was widespread civil unrest in burma uh, and of course Then there was the Second World War, which saw a very high peak, and in 1948, uh, Burma was granted independence from Britain, which also showed a high level of uh, interest. But a word of caution, this is not an infallible source. For example, if you enter Rangoon into the database, you get a massive spike in 1870 When I first did this I spent some time searching through all the history books trying to find out what had happened in Burma in 1870 that might have attracted such an enormous level of interest in Australia. What did happen was that a ship called the Rangoon ran aground at Kiama, south of Sydney. (laughs) And needless to say this incident was widely reported in the Illawarra Mercury (laughs) and picked up by the major daily newspapers. Even so, this is still a useful indicator of the generally low level of interest shown towards Burma by Australians over the past 200 years or so. If we look at global trends, we get much the same sort of pattern. This graph is compiled from Google's Ngram database, which is a word recognition tool created from 5 million English language books covering five centuries. Now, it also suffers from considerable weaknesses, For example, that's less than 4% of all the books ever published. But it has the benefit, at least, of going past 1958. And we can see bumps, not just in the Second World War, but in 1962 there was a higher level of interest when General Ne Win posted his coup d'etat. In 1988, with the uh, pro-democracy uprising, that also is um, quite interesting. Obviously, the major historical events stand out in these sorts of graphs. But they demonstrate that as a general rule, Burma attracted little attention in Australia and elsewhere until about 1988, the Second World War aside. So, who was watching Burma before then and with what result? Modern Burma studies began with the first European contacts during the 16th and 17th centuries. In their ship's logs and private journals, early explorers described a society and a culture that was quite different from any they had encountered before. As foreign contacts grew and Burma was visited more often by traders, officials and missionaries, these accounts grew in range and number. As you would expect, European writings on Burma increased greatly during the 19th century with the three-stage conquest and annexation of Burma by Great Britain. This map was made in uh, 1871 and it shows the conquests of the coastal strip in the First Anglo-Burmese War and what was then uh, Lower Burma uh, in the Second Anglo-Burmese War. The, uh, The conquest of Mandalay and the annexation of the entire country took place in 1885. During the colonial period, intellectuals, scholar bureaucrats and missionaries published numerous learned works. People like Gordon Luce, Whose collection of books and other research materials are now held in the National Library in Canberra described many hitherto unrecorded facets of Burmese history, archaeology, geography, anthropology, and natural science. Religious and linguistic subjects also received attention. Also, after the effective end of armed resistance to the British in around about the 1890s, travel up country was safer and made easier by developments in rail and river transportation, Burma attracted an increasing number of foreign sightseers, adventurers and other travellers, whose accounts of Britain's picturesque new possession found a ready audience back home in Europe. British officials who had served in Burma began producing a steady trickle of memoirs and commentaries. In their own ways, many of these works were pioneering studies of a country that had hitherto been unknown to Western society. During this period, though, perceptions of Burma, including in Australia, were inevitably influenced by the politics, popular culture and prejudices of the British Empire, which was then at the very height of its power. This is a photograph of the Chief Commissioner of Burma in the 1890s, Sir Charles Crosswaite, standing outside uh, his headquarters in Mandalay with a few of his little helpers. While informative and entertaining, not all the publications produced around this time can be considered entirely accurate or objective. If we consider works produced since the beginning of the 20th century, they fall into two broad categories. Each represents quite a different way of looking at Burma. The first consists of writings, music and art that emphasises Burma's exoticism and portrays it as a land of mighty rivers, swaying palm trees, golden pagodas and gentle people. Consider for example Rudyard Kipling's immensely popular poem The Road to Mandalay, which became a hit song in 1929 by the Australian singer Peter Dawson. When I was compiling this uh, presentation I dug around and found uh, about 20 other songs and tunes and compositions uh, about Burma that were composed between 1900 and the 1930s. And almost all of them have pictures of demure women in quite absurd costumes uh, that seem to uh, owe a great deal more to the Arabian Nights than anything to do with Burma. After he visited Burma in 1908, British painters like Gerald Kelly, cemented this romantic ideal in the popular imagination with his portraits of demure young Burmese women, happily more accurately portrayed, uh, which became enormously popular and indeed still are. Since the 1930s, over 50,000 prints uh, of uh, have been sold of Uh, just three paintings like this uh, in in Gerald Kelly's Burma series. Revealingly, the writer Somerset Maugham said of Kelly's Burma paintings that he had, quote, "'Given us the character of the East as we of our generation see it.'" During this period, Burma's uh, capital, Rangoon, was considered a pearl of the Orient in much the same way that Singapore perhaps is seen today, It attracted other artists and authors like Robert Kelly, Rudyard Kipling, Aldous Huxley and even Somerset Maugham himself. At the same time however, Burma developed an unenviable reputation as a remote province of India and the most violent corner of the British Empire. This is Mandalay Jail taken around about 1900. By 1925, With a population of roughly 13 million, Burma was sending about 20,000 men to prison each year. This was about three or four times as many as in any other province of India. The writer George Orwell, or Eric Blair as he was known then, spent five years as a police officer in Burma during the 1920s. He had a rather jaundiced view of the British presence, but his 1934 novel Burmese Days portrayed the country in unflattering terms. That's George, third from the left at the back. He famously described Mandalay as a most disagreeable place, famous for five products, all beginning with P, namely pagodas, pariah dogs, priests, pigs and prostitutes. Such negative views were also encouraged by a series of political protests, race riots and rural uprisings, uprisings that racked Burma in the 1930s. And then came the war. Between 1941 and 1945, Burma was the setting for the longest campaign of any in the Second World War and argu- arguably over the most varied terrain. Yet it received much less attention than the more familiar and better publicised campaigns being fought in Europe and in the Pacific. Efforts were made to draw attention to the China-Burma-India theatre, including through two documentary films. But not for nothing were General Bill Slim's forces known as the Forgotten Army on the Forgotten Front. There were two films made because the British and the Americans couldn't agree on what issues to emphasise. Burma Victory was made by the British to show the war against the Japanese in Burma itself. The Stillwell Road, Uh, which was narrated by an obscure actor named Ronald Reagan, was made by the Americans to highlight the Allied support to China, uh, up through the uh, Burma Road in particular. Unsurprisingly, official propaganda and reports of war correspondence in Burma emphasised the bitter struggle between the Allies and the Japanese forces. Under appalling conditions in what Selwyn Spate of the Sydney Morning Herald characterised in 1943 as a merciless country with some of the most terrible mountains in the world. Little attention was given in these stories to Burma's history, politics or culture. But even then, Western societies were being given mixed messages. For example, another Australian war correspondent, George Johnston, was known for his realistic copy, as in this story in the Argus uh, in 1944, where he describes Burma during the monsoon as a slimy, treacherous hell. Yet he wrote after the war, and I quote, It is a rueful thing to me that the only memories I have of Burma are memories of war. I know nothing of the real Burma, this lovely, placid land of charming, beautiful people, the Burma that the Burmese call the golden land. Again, we see Burma presented as a contrast between the good and the bad, the dark and the light. Perhaps the most indelible impressions of Burma following the war came from the the cinema. Before 1939, movies set in Burma portrayed it as an unhealthy colonial sinkhole populated by criminals, fallen women and the outcasts of empire. During the war, films served mainly as vehicles for allied propaganda. Burma merely provided a backdrop for broader themes. The action usually centered on intrepid truckies carrying supplies up the Burma road to embattled China or dashing heroes like Errol Flynn winning the war almost single-handedly. In fact, when Objective Burma was released in Britain shortly after the war, it provoked such an outcry from the veterans of the 14th Army that it was withdrawn from theatres after just one week. War correspondents often drew on cinematic images to describe what they saw in Burma, like, and I quote, fantastic Hollywood-like deluges of rain, according to Selwyn Spate. In fact, the National Library has a letter from Spate who wrote in 1944 that the jungle he encountered in Burma was honest-to-God Dorothy L'Amour stuff. This was a reference to the movie Moon Over Burma, which was released in 1940, starring the sarong girl herself. After 1945, most movies set in Burma were war stories. You might remember The Purple Plane, starring Gregory Peck, Yesterday's Enemy, with a young Leo McKern, or Merrill's Marauders starring the American matinee idol Jeff Chandler. There was a Burmese heroine in the Purple Plain, but none of these movies gave a very realistic portrayal of Burma or the Burmese people. The studios were still fixed on the idea of a beautiful country cursed with intolerable weather and inhabited by enemy soldiers, unfriendly locals and savage animals. This was certainly the approach taken in escape to Burma, A 1955 thriller in which Barbara Stanwyck played the manager of a teak plantation in what was described on the posters as the hot green hell of the Burma jungle. It contains a memorable scene in which the heroine encounters a chimpanzee, which of course is native to Africa, (laughs) and an orangutan which is only found in the islands of Indonesia. The locals were played by non-Burmese extras dressed in bizarre costumes dreamed up by the RKO studio's wardrobe department. But I shouldn't be too critical. We cannot expect an accurate and balanced picture from commercial studios that are making movies for light entertainment and a profit. My point is simply that by presenting Burma in such a dramatic fashion, movie makers helped to perpetuate distorted images of the country among a public that had few other points of comparison which could help them get a more balanced and accurate perspective. Another reason why some outlandish notions about Burma persisted was that entry to the country was difficult and travel around it even more so. After the war, for example, Burma experienced serious political unrest and what Australian newspapers called the greatest crime wave in Burma's history. Also, following independence in 1948, Burma faced major insurgencies from several ethnic and ideological groups. For a period, the government was known as the Rangoon Government, as that was the only part of the country that it effectively controlled. During the 1950s, Burma had one of the highest homicide rates in the world. Law and order of a kind was eventually restored but after General Win's military coup in 1962, entry visas were restricted to 24 hours. Seven-day visas were introduced in 1970, but several insurgent groups were still active, and as I can recall from my own time in country during the 70s, a large proportion of Burma remained off-limits to all foreigners and to many Burmese. After 1988, the new State Law and Order Restoration Council introduced two-week visas, increased in 1989 to one-month visas. Attracted by the prospect of greater foreign exchange, 1996 was declared Visit Myanmar Year. However, opposition groups both inside and outside Burma strongly discouraged tourism, and the number of visitors to Burma that year barely reached 100,000. The government was aiming for half a million. The practical outcome of all these problems was that Burma remained known to relatively few. Even good books on the country were hard to find. Before 1988, Burma was largely neglected by the academic community. The difficulty of gaining access to primary sources and reading them in the Burmese language tended to deter all but the most dedicated researchers. Also, after the 1962 coup, outsiders wishing to study the country were viewed with suspicion. Even if scholars and students could get visas, fieldwork was very difficult and access to reliable data was almost impossible. Between the 1950s and the late 1980s, relatively few serious studies of Burma were published in the major Western languages. Occasionally, travel books featured a chapter on it, but they tended to deal only fleetingly with the state of the country and its people. Occasionally there were stir- stories in the news media about particular developments, but with some notable exceptions, and some of us pine for the old Far Eastern Economic Review, these items tended to be very short, lacking in nuance, or simply inaccurate. Indeed, the rather sensationalist nature of many press reports simply added to the myths and misconceptions about Burma that were already lodged in the public mind. I recall that when I was about to go on posting to Rangoon in January 1974 I looked around for a guidebook that could tell me a little bit about the place where I was going. Uh, I was both disconcerted and excited to learn from one of the very few guidebooks available that I was going to an unknown paradise, Uh, (laughs) emphasis on the unknown. This situation changed dramatically in 1988 however when the widespread civil unrest in Burma became front page news around the world. The advent of a new military government with more open economic and foreign policies, and the rise of an indigenous opposition movement led by charismatic Nobel Peace Prize winner Aung San Suu Kyi ensured that Burma featured much more often in the international news media. Also, in the years that followed, They developed a global network of exiles, human rights campaigners and other activists determined to keep Burma alive in the minds of the international community. They lobbied hard for attention to be paid to the situation there. They were assisted by NGOs such as Human Rights Watch and think tanks like the International Crisis Group, which, albeit from completely different points of view, published detailed analyses of Burma-related issues. As a result of all this effort, over the past 24 years there's been a remarkable resurgence of interest in Burma among foreign officials, scholars and commentators. There's been an outpouring of publications on almost all aspects of Burmese life. In fact, the Griffith Asia Institute is about to release a bibliography of Burma that lists 928 books and reports published in English alone since 1988 and that doesn't include all the academic articles uh, or articles posted on the internet. This increased level of interest has been matched by a much greater awareness of Burma among the general population, prompting the publication of numerous works designed mainly for the mass market. In addition to magazine articles, these have included travel guides, collections of photographs, even cookery books. And Burma is even becoming popular as the setting for novels of all kinds. The increased attention being given to Burma since 1988 has been welcomed by many, but it has brought with it a number of problems. Firstly, there is no escaping the fact that in terms of quality, the publications about Burma produced since 1988 have been a very mixed bag. In part, this can be put down to a lack of familiarity with the country and the difficulty of finding out what is going on there. Academics, journalists and others are still heavily reliant on rumours, gossip and fragmented and unverified information. Such sources need to be treated very carefully. As the American academic Don Emerson has said, the plural of anecdote is not data. (laughs) There have been some stories which have circulated widely to the extent of being accepted as established fact but which on closer inspection simply do not stand up to scrutiny. Let me take just one example from the area I know best, namely Burma's strategic environment. For ten years or more, Indian politicians and officials accused Burma of hosting a large Chinese intelligence collection station on an island in the Andaman Sea, Great Cocoa Island. This claim was picked up and recycled through the news media. It was also given greater credibility by being cited uncritically in some academic journals. Yet as the Indian government has now acknowledged, there was never anything there. Also, the public debate on Burma has long been dominated by expatriates, foreign activists, specialist academics and regime supporters. Many have had strong personal views and specific policy agendas. This has led some to select, distort or even hide certain facts in order to influence public opinion. As you would expect, advocacy groups of all persuasions have interpreted the available material to promote their own causes. Governments are not immune from such considerations. Some states have been quite blatant in twisting the evidence to suit their own national interests. Even in democratic countries, politicians have been sensitive to domestic opinion on issues like the house arrest of Aung San Suu Kyi, or human rights abuses in Burma. This has encouraged some public figures to highlight the failings of the military regime and to ignore, or at least play down, facts deemed harmful to the opposition movement. Just to give you one example, in all the criticisms made of the Burmese regime's uh, use of child soldiers, few politicians or commentators Uh, have also acknowledged that many of the uh, armed ethnic groups also have child soldiers in their ranks. Another ingredient in this volatile mix has been Burmese expatriate news media organisations such as the Irrawaddy magazine, Mizima News uh, and the Democratic Voice of Burma and so on. They have been quick to embrace modern technology. Together with some independent filmmakers they have been able to smuggle news and images out of the country, for example, during the so-called Saffron Revolution in 2007, which gave rise to Burma VJ. In this way, they helped shape international perceptions of the military regime on a wide range of issues, ranging from forced labour to the plight of the ethnic communities to Burma's possible interest in acquiring weapons of mass destruction. And movies still play a role, Two in particular, Beyond Rangoon*, which was released in 1995, and Rambo, which was released in 2008, were produced as much to send a political message as to make money. In both cases, their directors admitted that they wanted to influence popular opinion about Burma, and to do so they used the tried and tested technique of portraying Burma in terms of contrasting extremes with beautiful scenery serving as a backdrop, the brutality and ineptitude of the military government was juxtaposed with the courage and stoicism of the Burmese people. Inevitably, these sorts of political campaigns did not go unchallenged, and not just by the military government. Some independent commentators felt that anti-regime activists, both inside and outside Burma, we're promoting a crude, misleading and one-dimensional view of the situation in the country. For example, in a history of Burma that's just been released, two quite eminent Burmese scholars, both at foreign universities, I might add, have claimed, and I quote, a quite different and largely imaginary Myanmar, Burma, exists in the cyberspace of foreign countries with little or no correlation to the real Myanmar seen on the ground in the country. Modern Burma studies have also been complicated by the highly charged atmosphere that has surrounded the consideration of policy responses by foreign governments and international organisations. In a situation that's reminiscent of the ideological and academic tensions that blighted Soviet and China studies at the height of the Cold War, Burma studies has become politicised and highly polarized. Just to give you an idea of what I mean, after 1988, the Burma-watching community split into two broad camps. While their long-term goals were very similar, namely democratic government and an end to human rights abuses, one camp argued for the imposition of harsh political and economic sanctions against the military regime, the stick, while the other argued equally strongly for a policy of engagement and dialogue, the carrot. Some of these arguments have generated more heat than light. Even the choice of Burma or Myanmar for the name of the country has come to be seen by many to denote a partisan political position. Perhaps the greatest influence on popular perceptions of Burma since 1988 has been Aung San Suu Kyi. As the United States scholar David Steinberg has noted, she is viewed as an international avatar for democracy, or as Time magazine put it last year, a beacon of freedom in a country that has none. She has become an icon for all of those, both inside and outside Burma, who wish to see far-reaching political, economic and social change. For more than 20 years, all around the world, Aung San Suu Kyi's picture has appeared on a wide range of publicity and promotional material, from magazines, including in China, to T-shirts, to CDs, posters, even postage stamps, including from some uh, African countries. Indeed, such has been the intensity of the international community's focus on Aung San Suu Kyi that other Burmese issues and other Burmese people have received less attention than perhaps they deserved. That said, Aung San Suu Kyi's influence cannot be underestimated. Activist groups, multinational corporations and even governments have adjusted their Burma policies to take account of her perceived views. I say perceived because for much much of this time Aung San Suu Kyi was under house arrest and unable to make her own views known. To date, her political thinking has been expressed mainly in terms of broad democratic principles and Buddhist moral precepts. Yet this very lack of detail has permitted people from all walks of life to project onto her all their hopes for Burma. It's also encouraged the rather unrealistic belief that given the opportunity, she can solve all Burma's myriad problems. As Nelson Mandela discovered, such high expectations can be a very heavy burden. Widely seen as courageous, Oxford educated and attractive, she has been contrasted with Burma's military leaders who have invariably been portrayed as brutal and superstitious monsters. This is one of the central themes, for example, of The Lady, a Luc Besson movie released earlier this year. Now there's no denying that it is a poignant love story but Aung San Suu Kyi is portrayed as nothing less than a secular saint while Burma's military rulers are cast as pantomime villains. If only Burmese politics was that simple. Just to underline my point about extremes, during Aung San Suu Kyi's visit to Europe in June she was described in the international press and reprinted here in Australia as quote the bravest and most moral person in the world, while Burma's government was described as, quote, the world's most repressive regime. This kind of hyperbole has become so common that it's rarely deemed worthy of comment. There is, of course, another major factor influencing perceptions of Burma, and that's the behaviour of the military government itself. We shouldn't forget that. After crushing the 1988 uprising, The generals seemed to care little for Burma's international reputation, but they did make a few gestures. For example, propaganda billboards were erected around the country, uh, significantly in English. The Tamador, uh, incidentally, is the vernacular term for the Burmese Armed Forces. Also, the regime relentlessly pushed its three national causes of stability, unity and national sovereignty, in the state-controlled press and local publications. These are all around the country, everywhere you drive, and significantly in English. The other thing I should point out is in the state-controlled media, uh, the government has been very keen to promote what it calls its four political objectives, four economic objectives and four social objectives. I think, in fact, just recently they have decided no longer to published them in the uh, the New Light of Myanmar but for many many years these appeared in every copy of the newspaper and often in uh, by state decree in uh, many magazines and even books that were passed by the censor. In the 1990s the generals hired a US public relations firm to help improve their international image but the only change which seems to have resulted from this initiative was that in 1997 The State Law and Order Restoration Council changed its name to the State Peace and Development Council. None of these measures had any appreciable impact on international opinion, which was formed largely on the basis of the regime's actions, or lack of action, not its words, and of course encouraged by the international news media and activist community. Since March last year, when Burma's mixed civilian-military government met for the first time in Naypyidaw, the new capital, now celebrated on its postage stamps, and President sein launched his ambitious reform program, many internal controls have been relaxed. Foreign officials, academics and other researchers now enjoy much greater freedom of movement and association, as indeed do the Burmese themselves. Burma is also trying to cope with a tsunami of tourists and businessmen all wanting to take advantage of the government's new, more open policies and, it must be said, a more welcoming attitude on the part of the opposition movement. These developments should permit a much greater awareness of Burma and more accurate perceptions, but it is still difficult to obtain reliable information about many issues. And there's still a tendency in some quarters to speak and write about Burma in terms that, consciously or unconsciously, keep alive some of the old myths and misconceptions. We still need to be cautious about accepting all we read and hear. Many questions remain unanswered. Even now, there are strong differences among Burma watchers over such issues as the future of the reform program, the president's motives, the role of the armed forces, attitudes towards the ethnic and religious minorities, Aung San Suu Kyi's ability to broker real, meaningful change, the cohesion of the opposition movement and the role of the international community, to name just a few. After a visit to Burma in 2000, the British intellectual Timothy Garton Ash referred to what he called Burma's fiendishly complex problems and the difficulty of solving them. There are now real grounds for optimism, but following recent political developments, many of these problems have become even more difficult as Aung San Suu Kyi herself has acknowledged. We need to remember that it is still early days in the reform process and the political situation remains fluid. Burma still faces enormous challenges. After more than 50 years of military rule, there's hardly a single sector of the government, society, the economy that's not begging for reform and desperate for financial, technical and other kinds of assistance. Some steps can be taken quickly and relatively painlessly, but the issues faced by Burma are such that fundamental changes will take considerable time, effort, and resources. To my mind, one important way in which Burma Watchers can assist in this process is to provide policymakers and members of the public with objective, balanced, and evidence based analyses to help try and dispel the myths and nurture a more sophisticated understanding of this fascinating but deeply troubled country. For only then will we all be able to know the real Burma, whatever that is. Thank you very much.
2: Cardinal,
0: I'd like to invite Andrew O'Neill, the director of the Griffith Asia Institute, to give the vote of thanks.
2: Thank you, Russell. And I'd like to start the closing remarks tonight by, uh, again, once uh, once again conveying my thanks on behalf of Griffith Asia Institute and Griffith University more broadly to uh, the wonderful support and partnership we have uh, from and with the Gallery of Modern Art here at the Queensland uh, Art Gallery. It's it's a great partnership for us, and it's one we highly value, and I'd like to thank uh, particularly Russell and, and Ruth for their very strong support, so thank you. The two words I'd use to describe Uh, I speak tonight is rigour and realism and quite often as we know in discussion of uh, rapid change uh, anywhere in the world but particularly in Asia which is perhaps changing more rapidly than any other part of the world, uh, these two attributes are often in short supply and as Andrew uh, outlined uh, tonight in uh, uh, remarkable uh, detail and, and with remarkable precision, a lot of the history of the commentary of Burma uh, has lacked both of these attributes, realism and rigour. And I think it's only by uh, bringing uh, you know, a true scholar's eye to the task that you can get uh, rigour of analysis and uh, you know, it's, it's fair to say that Andrew is one of, if not the leading international expert on Burma and we're very privileged to have Andrew associated with uh, the Griffith Asia Institute and I think this speaks to a broader issue too that that I just want to say a couple of things on before I I finish up uh, tonight's um, event and we're we're currently in the situation where the uh, Commonwealth Government is preparing a white paper on Australia's uh, engagement with Asia uh, led by uh, Ken Henry and uh, currently being redrafted uh, very quickly by all accounts uh, in my conversations in Canberra yesterday. From 500 pages, I think, down to about 150, or at least that's the rumour. And they say academics can't write short uh, things. Um, but but it speaks to, the, to to the broader issue, I think, of Australia's uh, Australia's challenge, and that is to maintain, uh, not just retain, but maintain uh, a kind of expert base in area studies, in in country studies, and. Um, you know, I think in a sense there are more people looking at Asia today in terms of of a kind of system-wide, as a system-wide phenomenon, if you like, looking at trends across the region. And I guess I fall into that category. But it's really important to to keep in mind the importance of an inside-out approach to the region and understanding individual countries, not just in, in a kind of contemporary context, but as Andrew illustrated tonight, from a deep historical perspective as well. Uh, and not just through one discipline, okay? Uh, I think Andrew's presentation tonight uh, roamed across various disciplines, and I think that was the real strength and depth of the presentation tonight was its breadth of of analysis. So Andrew, many thanks for tonight. It was a great uh, educational experience. And uh, it only remains to me to, to finish by another shameless plug for a Griffith Asia Institute product, as Andrew mentioned. Uh, his uh, tour de force, one of his many tour de forces, if that's the right phrase to use, is a select bibliography of uh, really Burma studies since the 1988 uh, uprising. And that will be, as it says, out soon uh, uh, and available uh, on I think I'm, it's fair to say on the Griffith website as well as uh, hard copies as well. So Andrew look, many thanks for tonight and uh, thank you for your continuing uh, education <laughs> of uh, not just uh, people here tonight but of Australians about Burma. So thank you.
0: For more Griffith University podcasts go to www.griffith.edu.au/podcasts.